Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics, to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Mark Locks. Mark is an associate professor in the School of Justice at QUT. As you'll hear him discuss, Mark has a long history in the public service in the Queensland government. His current research focuses on motorcycle gangs, including issues around masculinity and violence, corruption, and organised crime. Without any further ado, Mark Locks. Who are you? I'm Mark Locks. I was a public servant until 2004, and then I came here to teach justice students to be public servants. That was literally what they advertised, and that's how I got here. I was just finishing my PhD, and then I discovered I wasn't finishing my PhD because my crazy supervisor, my fifth supervisor at that time, QT was in flux at that time, my fifth supervisor just was never going to let it go through. Yeah, right. So I had to do a big rewrite, and I actually ended up doing it with two people in the school here, and we got, (laughs) six months later, it was submitted. But, yeah. I understand anyone who has supervision problems and I've made a guarantee to every student I've ever had that they never will do what I did, go through the absolute crap I went through when I was being supervised. I feel like we had similar PhD journeys, but that's a subject for a different topic, (laughs) for a different time. Another podcast. Another podcast. So I feel like you're pretty close to the longest running academic in the school of Belinda is. Belinda was here 10 years before me. Right, I figured it was pretty. It was either Otherwise, one of you. Otherwise, then it's me. Yes. Yeah, right. So um, when Melinda was not in the school officially, and was actually part of law faculty. I was the oldest, longest, okay. whatever the way you both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you love about the school of justice? Oh, I wish I'd started in academia a lot earlier. In some ways, it's good that I didn't because I did a whole lot of things that helped me work out what the hell I do here, but. It's my perfect job by a long shot. The wonderful thing about being in academia instead of being in the public service, you have some level of ability to avoid the people you don't like. It's harder if they're your boss, but if it's a co-worker, you can both be completely productive and happy and never have to speak to each other. If you're working in an office, um, it's unavoidable. Mm. You're with them every day and you're working with them every day. So academia is a job, especially with COVID and working from home, where you can just reduce that stress. This are completely unnecessary conflicts in the office you can avoid. It's one of the great things, like, you know, here we are, we've just moved in, we're sharing offices, they want us to go into open plan so we can collaborate. We're not really people who collaborate together. We all have our areas and we collaborate with people, but we're very eclectic here. Mm. So we're not collaborating with each other as much. It's very different in design or in the artistic areas of creative industries. But, you know, we, we have our areas of expertise. And we're brought in for that reason. If we're all exactly the same, we can't all teach the same subject. We're meant to have a wide range of skills to teach all the students. But we're just not that sort of environment where we work together, and that's fine. 
I kind of love that about the School of Justice. I kind of love that we're so eclectic and, for the most part, get on pretty well. Oh, you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Um, as I said, yeah, there's been personality clashes in the school, but apparently they were far worse before I got here. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons there was an opening for me to come here. Well, that's... <laughs> I think that's workplaces, though. I feel like oh, yeah. politics... Yeah. I mean, I know when I was in child protection, I loved the work, but the politics of the oh. organisation is what yeah. killed it for me. So politics is everywhere and how you deal with it. But let's come back to that conversation. Yes. First of all, tell me about your research. Research at the moment... 90% of it would be on motorcycle gangs, outlaw motorcycle gangs, and then with the corollary of um, organised crime. Though most of the work I do on, oh, on motorcycle gangs is showing that they're not organised crime groups. I um, was chatting to a police officer at a conference and he said, oh, every bikey I've met is an organised criminal. Yes, because you're a police officer. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone you meet is a criminal in your job. That's life. You know? Yeah. But I've done the numbers and... They're not, and 90% of them aren't. And, um, well, I've actually started to move away from the crime of motorcycle gangs to keep reinforcing this. So I'm becoming, I'm not a sociologist, but I'm becoming more and more sociological. But the difference is I'm the only person in the world who does qualitative research on motorcycle gangs. Yeah. Every other person, sorry, other than um, people who are doing motorcycle culture, are yeah. obviously social, that's very, very big. But outlaw motorcycle gangs exclusively, they're all statisticians looking at crime, mm. working with policing agencies. Lovely people, but, you know, I, I keep reviewing their work and saying, you can't reach the conclusion you're reaching. Knowing what I know from doing the qual, mm. qual work, your qual assumptions are wrong. Mm. That, oh, well, they committed these crimes. You have no idea if that crime had anything to do with the motorcycle club. Mm. You just see assault. Oh, bikies are violent, therefore that assault was to do with the club. Maybe... You've got to do the extra step. As I like to tell people, the top students, statistics can tell you there's a problem, but it can't tell you why. It mm. can't tell you how to fix it. The qual work, as you know, <laughs> it's all in the reading of the detail and the individuals seeing what they were like. Yeah, and it's complex and it's messy. It's really, really messy. Why are you interested in motorcycle gangs? By accident. Grew out of organised crime. There was that shift in realisation that motorcycle gangs were organised crime in Australia. And I, 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 I had done nothing on it. This is around about 2010. And I started doing some work on it. I got a phone call from two guys in the Courier Mail who... Um, so this is in the lead-up to Campbell Newman getting elected in the Vlad Lawless. They wanted some maps, draw social network maps, and I had the first round of the IBM Analyst notebook. So I started doing that work. So it all began with that. And then six months later, I got a phone call from the ABC, direct quote, you're Australia's leading expert in motorcycle gangs. I said, really? In six months, well yeah, done, Mark. I said, how did that happen? Oh, you're the only person. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and it started there. And it kept going, it's been really good for me. And I enjoyed it. But um, there's a level of how far I can go with it. I was, took long service leave when I was going to write an airport book on bikies and mm. put it out there. And I was given two different people told me unofficially that would really be a very, very bad idea. Why? Yeah. <laughs> and let's just say, when you're dealing with motorcycle gangs, there's a certain level you can go to. Yep. And then there's another level. If you want to go there, you go there. 
which you take all the risks. Yeah. So whilst I'm saying, you know, that 90% don't do anything, the other 10% is still there. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things um, Toby worked here and I used to talk about, Toby did a lot of work on police dealing with mental health issues. These guys who are going to jail, the ones who are the high performance offenders, as I call them, they nearly all have major mental health problems. Yeah. I'm not saying outlaw money soccer gang members are all crazy. I'm talking about those guys. So they, they probably fit a profile. I've done this work, but they probably fit a profile of highly violent offenders in the community. And that hyper-masculinity of the motorcycle gang overlaps. Yeah. So they're probably disproportionately present in that group of people. And unfortunately for the clubs, they're the ones who cause you all the trouble and end up with the legislation. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, right? Because, like, I've lived in a street with a motorcycle gang headquarters. Mm. And frankly, when we would walk home, this was when I was young, as opposed to now, we would walk home deliberately past the club because we knew we would be safe. They had cameras. If we were bugged by anyone, then the bikies would be the one that would actually intervene for us. But there is this perception that motorcycle gangs are all thugs. The the Hells Angel own own a shopping centre in Vancouver and people are fighting to get in there because there is no shoplifting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At all. It's interesting crime control, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. really interesting Talking crime about control. tough on crime. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the interesting thing, and it's probably the interesting thing of any subculture, that yeah. the tough on crime that's external to them, but I guess we, we're all, when we're all inside the frame, we have troubles. Well, they're, they're very tough on themselves, and you will get punished very severely for breaking the rules. But the point about any of these, as you say, these very exclusive subcultures, which I would include the police, mm. is it's our business, not your business. Mm. We're outside. So I'm writing an article right now, and you've probably seen me present on this, about how the motorcycle world, the actual motorcycle world, is actually a fantasy role-playing game. It is entirely mm. fake. Yeah. It doesn't... Street gangs, if you look at the Crips, if you look at South African street gangs, all these people, they had no choice. Their environment meant if you didn't join that gang, you were in serious trouble. Yeah. There is no environmental factor coercing and forcing people into motorcycle gangs. It is exclusively a choice. And it's openly said this is a choice and it's very hard to get into. We're an exclusive club. We're actually going to be very tough on who we let in as well. So this is not an environmental response. This is, I decided to join that group. Inside that culture is another parallel world of politics, and they Mm. actually call it the politics of territorial wars and masculinity, honour, vendetta, old, old school. It's called, um, I've actually, a friend of mine who died last year, we just launched his book two weekends ago, and he he looked at German and um, Gallic war bands and bikey clubs so it just showed the complete similarities. This is the same lifestyle. It's This is a generic male thing that's it's slowly dying out. Hmm. But it's there. It's called teen violence. And it's a natural response to humans being social animals. What's the men's role in getting their genes 
into you know into future generations exclude the other men mm. with extreme violence so this and and there's books one's called sex and war which looks exclusively at the genetics going from chimpanzees and our common ancestors forward saying this is a type of violence that has always existed there's another field looking at male violence from a psychological perspective not an evolutionary one that makes the same argument. So this isn't a unique or fringe theory. This is very, very much um, evolutionary psychology. So we can see exact examples of it in every single part of the world. Well, how do we know? Because this experiment called Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs is now everywhere. Yeah. I mean, there's so many contentious issues in there that we don't have time to unpack. Oh, no. Right <laughs> now. In my career. <laughs> And I guess that's part of, I mean, that's part of what it is to be a criminologist is that there's messy problems that are difficult to unpack. Mm. You said you're a public servant. Mm. Tell me, what does that mean? Today, nothing, because we're not public servants, we're now government employees. Okay. And I said the day that happened in 1990, I said, this is going to have a big impact on all of us. And everyone said, don't be stupid, it's just a word. No. And you can see with the integrity crisis going on in government today, that idea of, we're here working for the elected government, not for the public of yeah. Queensland. And by the way, that's not exclusively Queensland thing anymore either. It, it, it began in the 70s in Europe and expanded. So you're working for the government of the day. Yeah. You're not working for the people via the representatives of the people. Why is this a problem? It's a massive problem because it is a form of corruption. People taking the spoils of their win, taking the benefits. Oh, another project I was told to absolutely not do. There used to be a record of all the people who were appointed to boards and government positions. Yeah. This used to be all the online. It's gone. Mm. If it was still there, we could map, as you see the parties change government, you could map all the appointments. But then you could do another layer and see whether altogether outside of government. Mm. The law firms, the accounting firms, the businesses, the barristers' chambers, the little think tanks, where they're all, that, that network that they've built in Australia. And mm. again, this is, Australia's not unique. So there is a network of support. So you now have a situation where Morrison, who will probably lose this election, will be the last Prime Minister we'll ever have who has had a job outside of politics. Albanese hasn't. And there won't be another one again, even in the Liberal Party. There's no one left. Why do you think that's changed? Because they careerised politics. You yeah. Start in university politics. You go into a minister's office or a lecturer's office. There's all these supporting groups, um, business associations for the Liberal Party. Some of the unions, not all the unions, and certainly not all the jobs in either of these organisations. It's a bit like bikies. Mm. There's a core group. And you're basically starting your career path into politics with, will end with you being Prime Minister. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at some of the particularly one-term politicians that I'm thinking of, mm. they've come from a job outside of politics and they've gotten in there and they've gone, what's happening here, kids? Yeah. <laughs> and they've gone, this is not for me. I was in a meeting when I was in the public service. It was 1993. I'll never forget this meeting because John McKell, who's one of our PhD students here now, he was a minister, he wasn't at the time, and he said he'd been to Canberra for a meeting and he noticed 
that it had started in Canberra. Yeah, okay. All the ministerial staffers had never had jobs. He had been a teacher, by the way. He was a primary school teacher. And he said, this is really dangerous. If this becomes the rule, we're screwed as a community. Well, whatever, 29 years later, it's the rule. I mean, it's also interesting because it's not as if... Is it really that different to things like being a career academic, where you go from your undergrad to your postgrad to... No, your... no, it's not. It's, it's, it's a bubble. It's a bubble. The problem is the media aren't part of the academic bubble. Yeah, okay. The media are inside, physically, geographically, inside, and socially, inside the political bubbles. Yeah. State and federal. Yeah. And what they think is important is irrelevant to the vast majority of people in Australia. Okay. So they're, they're out of touch. Yeah. There was a Hawke government minister who was interviewed when they did the Labor government brought in the thing where they put the bats in the ceiling, that program and people died because they rolled out, it went from 35 companies to 18,000 companies in two years. And he said, look, what the problem was is during Hawke's government, there were literally people who had been electricians, train drivers and that in cabinet who would have gone, hang on, if you do that, this will happen. Yeah. That voice was there. It's exactly the same as the logic why we need more women in cabinet for those voices to be there going, hey, you don't understand the consequences yeah. of this. So the voice that's gone is the person who's lived a normal life and what that means in reality. That they're not, you know, politicians wouldn't know the price of bread, they wouldn't know the price of beer. They've never bought one. Yeah. Well, they haven't bought one on a, except on a credit card, they've never seen the price. So they've lost touch with reality. Academics have that same problem. We can easily turn into that as well. That's why we've got to do more engagement. Yeah. And I think we're pretty good here, quite frankly. I mean, you know, we try to be. But, yeah, politics-wise, it's awful. It's really awful in Australia and around the world. Go around the world and find, find a, a world leader right now in the Western world who hasn't spent their entire career politics. Boris Johnson was a journo for a while, but he was such an appalling person, they sacked him. Um, Biden, 100% politics. Trudeau, 100% politics. And probably Macron, I oh know Macron worked for a corporate bank, yet being in reality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but again, the, this is the, the way politics has gone. And it's awful. It's not good for us. It's great for them. It seems very problematic. Next. Next. <laughs> uh, when you were a public servant, what did you do? Annoyed people. A lot. A lot. What was your job, Mark? I was in policy and projects most of the time. At one stage there, I was, um, I ran the integrity unit of the Public Service Commission. Yep. I set up the integrity commissioner's office. The unit meant literally one, it was me, I was the unit. Right. <laughs> and you so got paid for being a unit of one. I right? was being paid for being a unit of one. The public service works like a, like a class unit. Yeah, very, very, really very does. slowly with inertia. Yeah. You do not rock the glacier. You do not cause the cracks. I caused the cracks. I had to leave. I'm here. Why did you do that? Like, why did you not just go with the flow? The very I was, slow, slow I couldn't do it. I couldn't stand it. I, I remember sitting when I was in Justice Department, I was sitting in my exec director's office and he was going, why did you start this project? I said, well, legislation's been passed. The minister announced it last Tuesday and all these people uh, are talking about what's going to happen when we put it in place. 
No one has asked us to start it yet. Don't do it. When I moved from Prairie, Prairie used to be a fairly proactive place. It was a go-getting sort of place. Um, I left. <laughs> I wasn't a go-getter, but um, when I got to Justice, I remember we did some brochures up on something really innocuous like dividing fences disputes. And I sent them out to all 82 courthouses that we had, all the magistrates' courts. And a guy came to me and said, you've made a massive mistake in this letter. And I reread it. I said, I can't see the mistake. You haven't told them to put the brochures Oh, out. my God. And I just laughed them off and paid no attention. A year later, we were doing a security review of courthouses. Every single courthouse had that box unopened in a storeroom. No one told us to actually give the brochures to people. That is the public service. Again, probably going back to bloody Hammer Barbie and the Babylonian Empire. Yeah. That's where you go if you're that personality type. When they, it's always the joke when they run a Myers-Briggs that I can never remember the codes for those Myers-Briggs personality types, but there's one type that 75% of participants will be. Yeah. Even though there's 16 different outcomes. So what was it, I guess, like for you working with people? Really frustrating, all the time. How did you deal with that frustration? I left and joined the university. I actually had to resign. I okay. resigned. They, they got the shits with me so much, and I got the shits with them, that I, I just literally walked in with a one-line, I've resigned, and walked yeah. out. I got my job here. Well, I didn't know I was getting a job here. I didn't, I didn't like, have a transition. I had no job. Yeah. I just walked out. I couldn't keep doing it anymore. And I meet people who are my age, we started together, and they just go, we just can't. We're 10 years from retirement, we're just working our time out, and that's it. Yeah, we don't okay. care anymore. We don't recognise what this world that we live in anymore. Is that a tragedy in that, though? Yep. Once again, it's not working for us. I was in a unique place. So my friend Wayne and I talk about this a lot. We started when the public service was being reformed in the 80s. We left in the early 2000s, both of us. Mm. We were in the aberration. So if you go back, back and watch Yes Minister from the early 80s about England, mm. that was the old public service. And everyone said, we really need to change that. We changed it. It's back. Yeah, right. The public service serves itself. And increasingly, the difference is now that responsiveness, a word invented by Bob Hawke, for him to allow him to sack directors general as he didn't like, serving ourselves is a political quid pro quo with the political class. Both sides. How is this relevant to justice students? They're going to work there. Yeah, 80% of our graduates are going to work in a government office of some sort, even if you're in uniform. So what would you advise students who, if 80% of them are going into the public service, what would, you, what would be your top tips for students going into the public service? Um, I can't guarantee that you're not going to be frustrated. I can't guarantee that you're not going to be upset with the system, but I can give you advice that will guarantee you won't be the one who's sacked. So always keep a record. Always tell the truth. Always, always pay attention to what you put in writing. And that means, I'm not saying you're covering up mis misconduct on your part. I'm saying, no, don't give other people the opportunity to undermine you. So what amazes me in all the inquiries that go on around the world 
So there are inquiries into how the FBI lied to their FISA court, the court that allows warrants, uh, about apprehended via, uh, a bias. They recorded it all in emails, mm. that what they were going to do. Now, there are people who are breaking the law. But if you actually say in a text or an email to a friend of yours, our boss is such an asshole, you've just given them an opportunity to do something to you. So that's the protection today that didn't exist. There was no social media record. I brought email into the Justice Department and the outgoing Queensland governor sent a letter from his position as Chief Justice to me via the Director General saying, email is a fad. You will not be spreading this to the courts. <laughs> There's a trial. Yeah. Don't give... that. Be honest. Always do the right thing. Always record your actions so you show that you have done the right thing, um, but never give them that extra opportunity to jump on you, because they will. How do you decide what the right thing is? They, <laughs> it's written in act. <laughs> this is the wonderful thing, it's actually written down. It's in your code of conduct. Yeah. Check the code of conduct. I say, hey, we can't do this. Um, when I was the integrity person, I'd have HR, heads of HR for departments, ring me and I go, hey, I'm public service act says, can't do that, there's the eight steps and blah, blah, Is there? I've never read that act. You're the head of HR. It literally tells you what your job is and you've never read the act. It's not complex. Hmm. It's very straightforward. It's available to you uh, 24 hours a day. You know what's right and what's wrong. Um, and the other thing is, if you are in a position where somebody's telling you to do something you disagree with, record, write the email recording that you don't want to do it, or at least voicing your concerns that there could potentially be problems. They will come to you and they exact words, because they've been said to me is, we don't do those sort of things in writing. That's the sort of thing we should do in a personal conversation, because they're covering their ass. Because mm -hmm. that means they can Say, I had no idea what Jody was doing. Mm. Jody never told me. Read every single politician. That's the way it works. Mm. Get it in writing, even if it's just to, you know, you've got a, a section head. There's five of you and there's one person who's the boss. Write it to them. Because it is a criminal offence to destroy that official correspondence. I feel as if one of the strategies that I often use is playing a bit dumb. Mm. in these emails and going forgive me if I'm wrong but it just seems to me that there may be these problems down the yeah. line please advise how you'd like me to deal with those should they yeah. occur I had a friend who was like that he was the master of it so I was in this particular branch and the branch's boss was going to be on a panel not for a job in our area in another area and his cousin applied for the job and he didn't go off the panel and we're sitting in the um, our regular staff meeting and he said yeah uh, wrapping it up and goes any other business and this friend of mine goes oh Pete um, you know how you've got to write that email saying you're dropping off that panel do you want me to give me a hand or are you just going to write it yourself yeah no no accusations no anger no nothing and he, he wrote an email and got off the panel that morning yeah so that's there's a lot of skills it seems to me in managing yeah people how do you think we can help students develop those skills? 
the lessons there are really, really easy and very hard at the same time because, again, we've got thousands of years of people working out how to do that. Very stoic ideas and Buddhist ideas, they're all virtually the same about don't let... <laughs> people have been telling you this since you're a primary school. Don't respond to them. Don't let them get you angry. That's what these things are. Learn it. Yeah, and it's, I can't do it now in my 50s, but they're the right things to do. If you're in the public service and something is happening that you want nothing to do with, there are two things you can do. One is you can go to your boss and say, I just I can't do this. I want to be transferred. You may get some level of punishment for that insofar as you get transferred somewhere that's bad. Better to be there than be part of the, the group stigmatised once it's discovered what happened. Mm. The other alternative is you can just leave and get a job outside the public service or in another public service. Mm. Um, there was a body, which I won't name, you would probably remember this if we went into the detail. They carried out a research project that turned out to be illegal. Anyone at the time should have said it was illegal. Mm. One of my former PhD students was in the meeting. She was a low-level person. And she said, had I arrived to the meeting two minutes earlier and sat in the seat next to me instead of the seat I was in, I would have been on the project. They counted along, Ooh. stopped at the person next to her. Otherwise, she would have been on the project. Yeah, right. Now, she didn't have to make any moral choices or anything like that. But, yeah, you can suffer for other people's decisions. So you need to be aware of them. And as you say, you can point them out. Just ask, what's, what's the plan here? What's, what are we doing? When you, when you write that email, by the way, don't admit that you're aware you're breaking the law. Mm. If you're breaking the law, just get the hell out of that situation altogether. It seems, I mean, it seems to me, I don't know if, you, I don't know if you've watched Misrepresentation, but Amanda Vanstone says this thing around sexual harassment in politics and in the workplace where she says, as a woman, you should never let them know that they've gotten to you. You should never play the victim card. You should never give them the power to say that they've gotten to you in that circumstance. It seems to me though that in that circumstance, nothing will ever change. If people just keep leaving, nothing yeah. will ever change. No, Mark. no, no. And um, unfortunately, that's just the nature of these monolithic organisations. Yeah, right. You know, people said you should have complained to someone. Who? Who? They're investigating the Triple C. Yeah. The body that was set up to be the secure place to investigate. I'm not making any allegations here about the people there, but I know a lot of people there. But imagine you're a public service today and you know there's an investigation into the Triple C. And you know there were allegations going on for a year before that. Who would you go to? Who would you go to? Who do you go to to complain? Um, and, you know, for good or real, we, we are at a lower level than in a position we're doing. Now, what you can do is, you can campaign outside your job to change things. And that's something you can do, and you can, we can do as academics too. Mm. So the school can't advocate, but we can. Mm. And we do. Um, and I was on, just as I was saying about bikies, I was on, um, with a journalist yesterday saying all the very problems we discussed before. We can advocate and say things are wrong, the law doesn't work. Um, and you can as well. Um, 
one of the groups that you can join, unfortunately, another monolithic organisation far too often these days, and it also ties into the whole politicisation career thing that I mentioned before, but you can join a union. You can be the union rep. And tell you what, if you want to complain about sexual harassment in the workforce and you're the union rep, you're safe. Mm. You won't get punched. You're as safe as you can possibly be. Now, unions, as I said, like any organisation, can go astray. But on the whole, the rank and file of the union are working very, very hard for their fellow workers. Mm. So that is a very safe place to be, to make a complaint. And you've got a much better chance of getting something done that way. So um, I would always join the union if I was in the public service. Mm. In the public service. There are places it's not worth joining the union because various reasons I won't go into and name particular places. But as a public servant, um, you should join your union because even, even completely cynically, it's an organisation that will have your back. Mm. Should the shit hit the fan. And if you've done nothing wrong and taken the steps we were talking about before, then the union are going to be there for you. The union during your career can also be a group that will annoy the living shit out of you, especially if you suddenly become a branch manager, because they will also represent people who should not be represented, but that's not my decision as to who they should be. That's your know, personal perception thing, right? But it's another step you can take. Mm. And you can always be the union rep. And that gives you a position to voice your concerns and raise things from a position of absolute safety because the public service unions are very large and they're not going anywhere. Mm. And even politically, I mean, I, I feel horrible making this all sound very shallow because I'm not that person. But politically, politicians know, because we have that natural experiment of Campbell Newman trying to find out what happens when you do piss off the, <laughs> the union. Politicians know what happens if you piss off the union. Mm. You will never see a Liberal government in Queensland piss off the union like he did again. Mm. Well, not for the living memory of the people today. So um, it's a position of strength where you can have your say. Mm. I, so really what we're doing is we're just talking about the basic fundamentals. Be a good person. Make sure you've covered your ass. Um, join a union. And if you're in a position where you feel morally compromised, talk to people, record that you've talked to people, write that email back going, thanks for that conversation. So you, you said this, 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 and this, and this, and I agree, and what I'm going to do is this. Yeah. Get it in writing. Yeah. And all I can guarantee you then is you're as safe as you can be. It's like the old thing. Will hard work always make you successful? No. no. But it will increase the chance that you're successful. <laughs> if you don't work hard, I can tell you the chance of your success is a lot lower. Likewise here, do all the right things. The chance that you'll get in trouble is very low. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, you'll be able to go to bed knowing you didn't do the wrong thing. I love that whole be a good person is the fundamental value of how yeah. to get through life. Yeah. Always be nice to everybody. If you're at work and you hate your co-worker, remember that no one ever changed the way they acted by being told they were a fucking arsehole. Mm. No one in the world, nor would you, and nor would I. Mm. <laughs> be nice to people. And don't, you know, I'm not talking about being sugary, hey team, everybody, come on, let's do a group hug. I'm talking about just be polite. Yeah. 
Um, and if, you know, if you're one of the people out there who has issues with all the questions of identity and all these things today, just remember that we dealt with this 150 years ago and it was called manners. Don't upset people. Be nice to people. Be aware of what people's concerns are and just be, be polite and be aware. And, you know, it doesn't affect you. Other people's personal choices aren't going to ruin your life. So just let them make their own personal choices and support them as much as you can and be nice to them about it and ask how they're going. Everyone will love that. Mm. It's not that hard. Is, <laughs> there, is there not decisions you have to make though where you are going to upset people? You're going to upset people, but how you upset people? Is we go back to that conversation like you were giving your example and I gave the example of the guy I work with. There are ways of upsetting people where you don't corner them. Mm. The cornered animal syndrome. Yeah. Where they turn on you. Yeah. You're going to have the hard conversation. And this is about being a good boss. I mean, I, honestly, I, I, I think um, when these people go and do their executive MBAs today, they watch that clip from Star Wars where Darth Vader just goes, one of the admirals on the Death Star, you know, you're not doing it fast enough. Blah, strangles him. You're next. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the level of management training they do. There's no actual leadership mm. and coaching anymore. There really is not. It's entirely frustrating. <laughs> yep. And I'm certain, yeah, to, to rescue with a QUT executive MBA, I'm certain that's not what they're taught. But it's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have worked with magnificent real leaders and it's been good, male and female. And I've worked with absolute psychotic sociopaths, male and female. Yeah. And that's your life, unfortunately. Hopefully you don't marry any of them. But yeah, it's going to, they're out there and you can't avoid it. And unfortunately, it's just a fact of life and it's a, it's a fact of politics, it's a fact of the public service, it's a fact of business. The people who want to get to the top probably have, most of them have the worst type of ethics because it's all greed and narcissism. The people who are most skilled at getting to the top are the greedy, narcissistic, backstabbing sociopaths. They're, we know from studies whether it's the military, the wherever, any large organisation, that 2% of the population can form 10% of senior management mm. because that's what they're good at. What then in your mind makes a great leader? It's a bit like art. I don't know what art is, but I know it when I see it. And if you wanted me to give me the examples, um, there was a guy who was my first boss in Justice Department, who is the exec director, not the one who asked me why I was doing things, it was his predecessor. He was the greatest guy in the world. He would really rip into me if I did the wrong thing. But he did it in a way where I knew I had done the wrong thing. I had to take responsibility for mm -hmm. it. He didn't do it unreasonably, it was all spelt out. You stuffed it up. And these are the consequences. All right? Gives you a second to think about it. And by the way, we're all going to the pub at four. Mm. And you knew there was no carryover acrimony. You had to take responsibility and he would hold, it to, hold you to it. And I had my, my very first boss, Wendy Armstrong, I know, she was fantastic. She was the person who got me out of working in records and doing real research in the public service. She was the same. When you did the wrong thing, she told you, she told you straight away, she told you exactly how you'd stuffed it and you had to work harder and why everything was wrong, but there was no layers of personality, there was no layers of bullshit in there, no unnecessary anger and emotion. 
and then two hours later we're back to normal mm. because it was about you made a mistake but the other part of the recognition there is they know that making mistakes is part of the process of learning to oh do God. any job so they don't they're not going to sack you for it yeah i mean this is this is it isn't it we're all yeah. i think we're all terrified of making mistakes but making mistakes is really normal in life but it's how you and the people around you deal with it that is the yeah. important yeah and you know i mean it, it's all over the internet when you if you ever get all those things about you know the people are saying hey how do you build the best life and that you have to make mistakes and I have no idea what Elon Musk is like as a human being, but they always put him up there, how many rockets blew up before he got mm. the one that worked and now he's going to make 200 of them. Mm. But they blew up and it cost him hundreds of millions of dollars every time and he went, oh, well, we'll try again and we try again and we try again. The learning process involves making mistakes. If you have a boss who can't tolerate their staff making mistakes, you're in trouble and they're in trouble Yeah. because they're not going to keep their staff. So the boss I had in the public service, who I won't name, had a turnover of, we had eight staff, we were losing 12 staff a year. Yeah, right. And I was one of the people who eventually left as well. Yeah. That was when I was stupid, in the sense of I didn't realise I didn't have to be there. Yeah. This was wrong, it was morally wrong, and it was. It was socially wrong, and it was. She was lying to the premium, she was. Somebody should do something about it, and I eventually had to realise I wasn't the person who could make a change. So I had to change and I left. Yeah. You don't have to do that to yourself. You don't have to be the martyr. And you will be a martyr if you're in a lower position. So unless you're able to like get that union position or something like that where you're in a position, you've got to recognise what you can change in the world. And that's a fundamental Buddhist or Stoic thing of there are some things you can't change and you have to recognise what they are and you have to accept that you can't change them. So you, the thing you do is rescue yourself from those things. And there will always be a point, a social point, and that's where we have major mass movements where everyone says, no, we've had enough. Yeah. Um, the stuff we've seen with all the movements about sexual harassment in the workplaces in politics. Jesus has been coming for a very, 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 very long time. Yeah. And by the way, it's long from over. And the boys haven't stood up yet. Uh, so the wind-up questions that I have for you are, do you have a favourite theorist and why? I used to, I don't anymore. Now, because um, I read so many, I did my um, honours in philosophy. I did an undergrad degree in philosophy as well. So I've read far too many theorists, theorists. It all gets very confusing. Mm. Um, I would say that there's a point in theory where it becomes very exciting and very interesting but you've got to get, keep coming back to your fundamentals like we've been saying today. In any, in any endeavour, these are human beings. Why are they doing it? What are their motivations? Mm. And like we were saying about this team violence and men, there are some things that are human. We're slowly whittling them out. And you've just got to be careful that your theories aren't actually emulating those parts rather than actually examining those parts, if that makes sense. So, you know, I'm teaching, as of next week, I'm teaching political theory, and I tell everyone, don't follow any of these theories because none of them are perfect. Mm. They're all a bit of a blend of good ideas. Mm. So if anyone, I, I will say um, um, the French existentialists, from the point of they simply said, lead an authentic life, of make your own decisions about what's right and wrong, don't just follow people for the sake of it. So read a shitload learn a lot, 
watch a hell of a lot of YouTube videos about things and make up your own mind about who you want to be is the best way. And if nothing else, you'll die at least knowing that you did what you wanted. Mm. Excellent. What are your top tips for students getting through their undergrad degree? Do the reading. (laughs) (laughs) Which is part of this. Like, I feel like... When you were talking about the guy in HR who hadn't read the legislations, I just thought, oh, my God, do your reading. Do your reading. It's just silly straightforward. Those students who go, do we have to do the reading? You don't have to come to class, but you're probably not going to pass. Yeah. It's there for a purpose. You and I didn't sit down randomly on our own one day. I reckon I'm just going to add some readings to all the lectures. (laughs) Do the reading. Come to the lecture if you can come. They're nearly all online now. and You'll have an online opportunity. Everyone has. Mm. Participate and ask questions. You will have questions. If you haven't got questions, you haven't done the read. Mm. End of story. Answer your questions. I, for example, I know a lot of people do. I will run a separate session or an entire lecture about the assignment. Be there and ask questions Mm. about the assignment. It'll help you. We don't do it for the fun of it. We really don't. (laughs) So, you know, the way, when I started university, 1982, our entire orientation with conduction was if you plagiarise, you're expelled. Look to your left and right, only one of you will be here at the end of the degree. That was it. There were no petting zoos and drinking parties. That was it. A friend of mine wrote an exam, very intelligent, went over and worked in America and in, in space insurance for a highly intelligent law student, and he wrote this very long answer to an exam question and he just misread the question he wrote the wrong answer and his lecturer in red pen wrote ha 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 and zero that was his feedback oh we aren't those people we anymore we are not those people <laughs> we really are not that's gone yeah so we everything we do we are doing to help you as a student take advantage of it mm. We go out of way. I rewrote in plain English the entire theoretical course because it, I don't want to read the originals. Mm. So don't go there's too much reading. Trust me, there's not anymore. Mm. <laughs> it's not there. So do the work. People are here to help. I don't think there's a single person I've met in this school in the entire time I'm here who has not been proactively trying to help the students I've taught. I agree. You know, so we've done everything we can to help you at least pass. Take advantage of it. We want to be there helping you. Mm. Okay, I know that we're um, up against the weather, so I'm going to say thank you so very much, Mark. I feel like we could rant for hours together. Thanks. This interview was hosted and produced by the wonderful Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. This podcast was developed with support from QUT. Thank you for listening.